The Energy Gang is brought to you by Bloom Energy. Bloom is transforming the way businesses and communities take charge of their energy supply with resilient, predictable, and zero-carbon solutions. Bloom's on-site energy platform provides unparalleled control for those looking to secure clean, reliable 24-7 power that scales to meet critical business needs. Bloom's platform eliminates outage and price risk while accelerating us all toward a zero-carbon future. Visit bloomenergy.com slash theenergygang to take charge today. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Hitachi Energy. How is the grid evolving and changing? What does it mean for your business, your energy needs, your customers? Whatever your goals, look to Hitachi Energy for the right technologies to help unlock new revenue streams, maximize renewable integration, and lower carbon emissions. Visit the link in the show notes to learn more about what Hitachi Energy can do for you. This is the Energy Gang, weekly discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. Travel restrictions, local labor strikes, missing world leaders, energy price inflation. It's going to be a logistical challenge for this year's climate negotiations in Glasgow. This week, we explore the range of expectations for global climate talks. Catherine Hamilton is in Arlington, Virginia. She is the chair of 38 North Solutions. Hi. Hey, I got the best text of the week last night when Nate the House Whisperer Adams uh, said that I had done well with my heat pump, which if anybody heard the last episode, there was a, a bit of drama around me trying to get a new heat pump. And evidently I got the right one. Nice. So, so he asked you what it was, you told him, and he gave you the seal of approval? He said, perfect. And <laughs> I couldn't have asked for more. Such a delightful feeling when Nate signs off on something (laughs) in your home. (laughs) Ed Crooks is in New York. He's vice chair of the Americas at Wood Mackenzie. Hi, Ed. Hi, hi. How are you? So I'm excited by this uh, heat pump news. As I think I also said last week, I'm uh, probably in the market for getting one myself. So once we're off the air, let's, uh, let's have a conversation about that. I want to find out the secret to getting it right. Well, I can breezily say go for it now that I've gone through it. (laughs) (laughs) So look, we are in the business of talking about the news on this show, and there's no other place to start than a bit of news for me and Catherine and Ed. Catherine, do you want to tell them? Well, this is tough. This is... uh this is my final episode with Stephen, and the Energy Gang is going to look a little different moving forward. Yes. So this is uh, this is our final episode of the Energy Gang as it stands now with uh, with Catherine and myself as co-hosts, and 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 Ed is going to be taking over the show with a with a range of with other co-hosts. And Ed, uh, I've got my keys for the show here on a keychain. Should I send them overnight <laughs> to you? <laughs> yeah, thanks very much indeed. Yeah, no, it is a um, it's a big moment. It's a sad day for us. Uh, you know, it's been a fantastic show, obviously for many years, and maybe we'll just talk a little bit about uh, the history of it. But I've been a huge fan as a listener of you, Stephen, and you, Catherine, um, and also Jigger. It was great to have Jigger back on uh, when we spoke to him last week. So it is um, a big moment the transition, but all good things come to an end, and hopefully we'll be have some more. Great things happening with the Energy Gang in the future. So Wood McKenzie is going to be producing this podcast and the companion podcast, The Interchange, from here on out. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that means going forward. First, I wanted to give a a really brief oral history of the show 
to make the, the transition make sense for folks. So we created this podcast in 2013. That was when I was an editor at Green Tech Media. Catherine was tapped in 2013 to co-host it, um, and we brought on Jigger as well. And Catherine, that was right when you'd started your firm, right? Yeah, that's right. We were definitely a startup then. And you and Jigger called me and said, hey, do you want to co-host a podcast? And first I said, what's a podcast? And then I said, what do I have to wear? (laughs) And you're like, it doesn't matter. And I'm like, I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out that was true for everything in life now in this Zoom world. Yeah, it doesn't matter anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So, So then, you know, we continued doing the show. And in 2016, Wood McKenzie acquired Green Tech Media, the news business and the research business. A couple years later, I actually left GTM and Wood McKenzie to start my own audio production business, PostScript Media. Catherine and Jigger and I continued doing the podcast. And then at the start of uh, this year, Wood McKenzie fully integrated the Green Tech Media content and research brands into Wood McKenzie as a whole. And so as we head into the end of the year, into 2022, we are passing the Energy Gang torch on to Ed and the production team at Wood McKenzie. Um, they are going to own and manage the pod and keep it going. And so uh, my company, Postscript Media, is going to focus on other kinds of original climate podcasts. You'll see more from us in the future. And Catherine, you're still going to be working hard for the clean energy industry. What are some of the big professional areas you're focused on? Yeah, so while 38 North Solutions is no longer a startup, we're still chugging along. We're still working really hard on policy um, in the U.S., North America, and globally, uh, both regulatory, legislative policy. And, you know, it's the clean energy space is just blossomed so much since we started the show. The transition is happening so quickly because everything's gotten a lot cheaper and been deployed a lot quicker than we thought it would, especially things like energy storage. I mean, I think I'm going to be focused a lot on electrification, as I have been for the World Economic Forum, digitization. um, And there are just, there's so many great new technologies out there that are just always fun to look at and to try to think about, you know, how do we, how do we think about policy that's going to really enhance the technology and the business models. And it feels like you're on the board of like every major organization in this in this field too. So I'm sure that's going to keep you busy. Uh, no, I'm not. No, I I've I scaled back a little bit and then I joined uh, the Greentown Labs board, but I'm actually going to be looking at trying to be do more on the corporate side. I think that's something I'm really interested in doing and I think those those folks really need more women's voices and faces and ideas and I I'm going to be focusing a lot on that. Ed I want listeners to get to know you a little bit more. So you've spent your career in journalism and as an editor. How did you come to become an expert on energy issues and what have you been focused on? Yeah, no, well, thank, thanks for that chance to do that. I mean, my background, um, in a sense, is kind of all building, been building up to this moment in that I was um, sort of an economist by uh, training and background originally back in the dim and distant. And then I worked for the BBC for 10 years. And I worked a lot on radio. I worked on mostly on Radio 4, which was the big uh, talk uh, station of the BBC, of course, familiar to many people. Then I went to the Financial Times and uh, was writing initially about economics at the FT and pretty quickly from that got into energy. And it was at a time, um, sort of early mid-2000s, when it seemed like uh, people were waking up to the fact that energy was going to be a huge story um, and really just arguably the dominant story in terms of the way the world is going, both because of 
geopolitical sense and the geopolitical significance of energy and also obviously because of climate change and the fact of this uh, enormous uh, existential threat hanging over global civilization. So made that jump, was absolute kind of um, uh, novice uh, in the energy world completely when I when I made that jump, but um, have been learning more about it ever since, and just loving it really, and become completely I've become completely uh, fascinated by the world of energy, and just took that step then to go even deeper into it uh, as of a couple of years ago by joining Wood McKenzie. It's a fascinating thing to be doing and a great time to be doing it. Catherine, what is the big story of? the last eight years, you think, and what is the big story going forward? Gosh, I feel like the big story is energy storage, really. <laughs> I can't help myself. And and the reason I say that, and that it was really hammered home to me, was I was talking to a u- utility innovation person the other day, and they said, well, you know, I'm in charge of things like run-of-the-mill energy storage, but then also, and he went on to say something else, and I was like, wait, you just said run-of-the-mill energy storage? It was not run-of-the-mill at all eight years ago. It was something that nobody believed would be cost-effective and that California had to put real targets in for all of the utilities to say, you got to do this. And it created a whole industry. It drove down the cost. It scaled. And here we are. It's run-of-the-mill. Um, and we're getting more and more energy storage technologies by the day. So that's that's super exciting. So I see that as the technology that's grown the most. I think going forward, I'd mentioned a little bit about this, but I think electrification and digitization are going to be huge because those are going to enable all of those services that will connect the supply and demand sides of the grid. And, you know, certainly we're going to need a lot of really good transmission technology to connect all those dots as well. But I think we're going to see a lot more digitization going forward. Ed, do you have a specific storyline that you're most interested in going forward? I think a couple of things that I'm particularly keen to, uh, to pursue. One is transport and uh, the electrification of transport and what happens as we get a large number of electric vehicles on the roads. That's something which potentially is going to be a huge change over the coming 10 years and has all kinds of implications, not least for global oil markets and what that's going to do for fuel demand and also what it's going to mean for grids and the additional kind of strain that it's going to put on on the grid in every country that goes heavily for EV. So I think that's really important. And also just to agree with Catherine, I think the other big one is storage and substitute substitutes for storage, if you like. Um, one of the things we're going to be discovering a lot more about over the next 10 years is what happens to a power grid that has a lot more variable renewable energy on it. So as you get to these numbers where you have maybe 50%, maybe more of that, of your power coming from wind and solar, how do you manage that? How do you manage the inevitable variability that comes with that? What kind of storage do you need? What other technologies do you need? Do you need carbon capture? Do you need hydrogen? Do you need new nuclear maybe to support that? And I think that's going to be a huge issue, which is going to be very much uh, on everyone's minds, uh, certainly for the next 10 years uh, and beyond. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot about the different ways that we grapple with climate change and the changing planet across a variety of 
facets of society. So in popular culture, in art, in food, in travel, in tech, in business and finance, there are lots of ways that this story is starting to filter its way through society as we as the problem starts to play out in real time. It's no longer a future problem. And so that is going to impact us in a variety of real-time ways. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really thinking about how to, how to tell that story. And that's, that's the thing that I'm obsessing over right now. So I just want to say, Ed, it's been a great pleasure getting to riff with you over the past couple of months, and I'm eager to see how the dialogue continues here on the show. Well, thanks very much indeed. As I say, likewise, huge pleasure and a privilege to be uh, uh, involved in it for a little bit. As I say, having uh, listened to it, listened to the Energy Gang as a fan for a long time, uh, been great to be part of it, and feels like a great privilege and also a huge responsibility to be carrying it forward, taking it into a new era, and uh, hopefully being, as I say, true to that legacy that you've built up. Well, we wish you a lot of luck, and we'll be listening. And Catherine, you have always been the favorite part of my week. Oh, well, this has been my favorite part of the week. You've been amazing, and um, it's been great to get to know Ed. And our our guests, all of our guests have been absolutely terrific, and our listeners are incredible. They have been so loyal and so helpful and sometimes you know nudging and that's good um and i hope that continues uh ed you'll you'll have to make sure you you follow them on twitter pretty closely absolutely so again the interchange and the energy gang uh is now going to be produced by wood mckenzie and you can find the interchange and energy gang on twitter ed is there on twitter and you can follow me and Catherine on twitter as well for to see how things are going for each of us The Energy Gang is brought to you by Bloom Energy. Bloom is accelerating the hydrogen economy. Bloom's electrolyzer uses electricity and heat from a variety of clean energy sources like concentrated solar power, solar panels, and nuclear to generate green hydrogen at scale. It's also partnering with industry leaders to produce that green hydrogen. Its pioneering solid oxide fuel cell platform leverages technology originally developed for Mars, and it's uniquely designed to decarbonize the world's hardest to abate sectors. Bloom's platform has the flexibility to be deployed as a distributed generator or as an electrolyzer. Learn more at bloomenergy.com slash the energy gang. The energy gang is brought to you by Hitachi Energy. Energy access and resilience is needed everywhere. Around the globe, from the frozen Arctic to the heat of the Australian desert, Hitachi Energy has been delivering innovative grid-edge solutions for 30 years. Today, Hitachi's technologies can improve resilience and efficiency, integrate solar or wind to reach sustainability goals, and lower energy costs. It's all possible with grid-edge solutions from Hitachi Energy. Learn more about stacking value and new services to utilize battery storage at the link in the show notes. Well, now that we've shared the big news about the future of this show, let's turn now to the biggest news item about the future of the planet. COP26 is starting this week in Glasgow, Scotland. It is make or break and the final point where we can keep 1.5 degrees alive, according to Alok Sharma, who is the COP26 president. Um, U.S. climate envoy John Kerry calls it the last best hope of limiting dangerous warming to below 2 degrees Celsius. And there are a lot of things to look out for as the talks play out over the next couple of weeks. Who's setting new ambitious targets? Uh, How are some of the practical pieces of the negotiations coming together? 
will logistical complications hurt who attends and hurt the outcome? Already, you know, Prime Minister Boris Johnson and, and John Kerry are lowering some expectations. The presidents of China, Brazil, Russia, Mexico, and Japan say they're not coming. And countries are lobbying the UN to soften language around phase-outs of fossil fuels. With a problem this big and complicated, we're going to try to avoid the win versus loss framework that plays out in the press. And I think we want to talk a little bit more about that framework. Um, we're going to ask, was enough achieved to keep meaningful progress moving? Were some of the logistical needs coming out of this conference met? And so let's talk about what's at play as we enter the negotiations. This is two COP conferences blended into one. Um, Catherine, what kind of framework are these negotiations designed to achieve? Yeah, so they actually have the Paris Agreement, which provided the framework for what they have to get done. This is the year, five years post-Paris, at which everyone is supposed to ratchet up their commitments. And so there's some big things that kind of have to happen just based on what's already in place that they have to do. One is that they have to make sure that everybody has committed to net zero by mid-century because right now the policies that are in place will not keep us to 1.5 degrees. They have to make sure that there's finance. So there is $100 billion that the richer company countries are supposed to be committing to developing and emerging economies to help them to adapt and mitigate for climate change. That has to be figured out. And Alok Sharma really wants to make sure that we limit coal and really get to half of our emissions by 2030 and net zero by 2050 across the board and all of this to make sure that it follows the science and does so in a way that is accountable. Ed, what do you think the must-achieve goals are coming out of this conference? The first thing I want to say about this, I do hate all this language about make or break, do or die. Apart from anything else, um, it sets you up for failure because if, then if things do go wrong and COP26 is not considered a success, well, you know, that was our last chance. So the chance has gone. So there's nothing more we can do, which of course is actually completely wrong. That 1.5 is better than two degrees. Yes. But two degrees is better than 2.5 and 2.5 is better than three. Whatever we can do to make progress is worthwhile. Absolutely. We should be trying to make progress towards limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees C because that's the way that you minimize the impacts of climate change. And once you start going above that, the impacts do become more threatening. But if you can't do that, it doesn't mean that nothing's worth doing. And so I think there's a real danger of slipping into that trap when you use that kind of rhetoric. Yeah, I totally agree, uh, Ed. So much of what happens is in between these meetings. Um, the issue is that this this is the only venue where every single country has a voice. Uh, most other venues, other UN meetings, every country doesn't have a voice. So this is one of those places where everybody gets to have their piece and to, and to communicate what they've done and how they can be accountable. But I agree that sort of the hyperbolic language and this issue about President Biden having to take things that have been completed and signed in, into law over there to prove that we're doing something is also a bit much because you can see by what the U.S. is, how the U.S. is moving forward now that he has a lot he can talk about. So I do think that it does help bring everybody together to say, okay, we really have to do something and get everybody serious and get everybody on record. That said, everybody has a voice. And I think progress is progress and everybody can show that. Yeah, I know. I, I absolutely agree with that. And as you say, 
a lot's happened between meetings. We've had an enormous amount of progress already in terms of big economies setting net zero goals. So we've had um, the EU, UK, Canada, Japan, South Korea, all with their goals for 2050. We have that as the, the goal of, of the US. And obviously, there's room for debate about how realistic this is as a commitment for the US, but it's there as a stated goal of the Biden administration. You have China, which obviously has been a lot of concerns about how serious China is about climate action, but China also committing to net zero by 2060. Saudi Arabia coming up with a target just uh, over the weekend and so on. So in that sense, I think just by having a lot of governments set those targets, which is, as you were saying, Catherine, that's part of the of the COP process. That's what's meant to be happening as part of this five-yearly review since Paris. Um, already, that's a substantial amount of success for COP26. That's real progress that's been made. As I say, a whole load of questions you can raise about those targets. Are they real? Are they going to be achieved, et cetera, et cetera. But the mere fact of the targets existing is still, I think, very significant. So there's this big question about international equity that infused throughout these entire negotiations. One is just logistical, right? There's a lot of delegates from smaller countries, emerging economies that can't get to Glasgow or are having a hard time getting getting to Glasgow because of COVID restrictions. And that's a big question about who is at the table actually um, asking for things during these negotiations. The other big piece is how do you develop the framework around the $100 billion climate fund from rich countries to poorer countries that will help them implement clean energy help with technology transfer, and really recognize the fact that rich countries have been the problem. So that, the details around that climate fund are really fundamental to Glasgow. Ed, how do you see the, this theme playing out in these negotiations? One of the things that was done at uh, Paris in order to help resolve exactly that issue was this um, $100 billion uh, a year, which is meant to come from rich countries to poor countries to help with both cutting emissions and with uh, adapting to the impacts of climate change. The rich countries have not yet delivered on that. And again, then, so when you're expecting sort of global commitments and everybody to pull together to address this global problem, well, hey, you know, the rich countries can't expect the poorer countries to stand by their commitments if the rich countries aren't standing by their commitments, which is to provide this financing. Now, it does look like we're getting close. I think, as I said, the numbers, uh, 100 billion that the rich countries said they would provide, they got to 80 billion in 2019. So they are kind of getting there. But still, I think it would make a huge difference. And that would represent real progress and actually genuine success um, at Glasgow next week if you do see. Um, some definite deal that puts that $100 billion a year in, in place. Worth remembering. I mean, it sounds like a lot, but, you know, uh, when you think about the total costs of the energy transition, absolutely run into the trillions of dollars, probably you know, a trillion plus per year worldwide. So uh, in that context, even $100 billion is not an enormous amount of money for rich countries to be paying to poorer countries. It seems totally reasonable to me that they should pay that. But it is; uh, it has been difficult to make it happen, and that is an area where I think we do need to see some real progress. What does Biden have to prove there? He's going to be there with bells on, <laughs> as his team has said. Um, what, what does he? What does he have to bring there to prove that the U.S. is is back? 
Well, so he has already said we're back in, right, to the Paris Agreement. So that was the first big thing he did. And he will have a lot to show for himself. First of all, he there's a lot just in the market in the U.S. in state. So there's a lot of state activities. I know that Governor Pritzker from Illinois is going to be there. They just passed a big climate, uh, big clean energy bill that I think will, will be great for the state of Illinois. But Biden can also show all the executive action he's taken. He's doing a lot of regulatory actions. He's he's making climate change a whole of government issue. Um, in addition to equity and jobs, economic development, um, he's trying to make sure that every single agency at his disposal will be pointed toward solving that issue. And then he's done a ton to get Congress to come together. So there will be two big bills. One is this infrastructure bill that's ready to roll um, whenever the House takes a vote on it. And the infrastructure bill has a lot of really strong programs to try to help us get to you know more electrification, a smarter grid, a better way to deal with power systems and transportation. And then the big reconciliation bill, the big funding bill, which even if it isn't 3.5 trillion, which is what everybody sought, the piece on climate looks like it's really holding tough. And there will be more money put into climate than it has ever happened in the US. And it will have a number of provisions that he can speak about is I think they will have certainly there are, there are enough proposals out there. there. There's enough support for those that he can he can talk about them in a way that really shows a lot of leadership. And I don't think, as I said, this is not a make it or break it. As, as Ed had said, this is really about showing global leadership. And I think Biden will certainly be able to do that. Ed, what are the different outcomes we might expect? So I think, as I was saying before, one of the uh, crucial things that everyone's looking at is this question of the targets the governments are setting, and that we've already had huge progress in that. And as, as Catherine said, you've now got 70% plus of global emissions are coming from countries that have now set a net zero target. So that's that's huge progress already right there. I think in terms of what you might expect um, out of Glasgow specifically, there's two key things I think we're going to be watching. One is this question of the, the financing and getting to that $100 billion. And the other is the somewhat technical question of Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. But actually, this is something which is uh, really important and worth digging into a little bit, I think. Um, Article 6, which is about essentially the international transferability of emissions reductions. In other words, ways that you can use emissions reductions in one country to uh, help with meeting emissions goals in another. And there's various different ways that this can happen. This can happen through uh, voluntary cooperation, through um, uh, technology transfer. It can happen through a bilateral uh, carbon market or possibly regional carbon markets or even a global one. And, and there's talk about having some sort of centralized global system for essentially uh, registering carbon credits. The crucial thing uh, about this and the, the aspect of this issue that still needs to be finalized is the question of how do you avoid double counting? So how do you make sure that if you're, uh, if you have an emissions reduction in one country, that is a real reduction in emissions that is actually happening and you are claiming credit for that, but you are not claiming credit for it multiple times over through multiple different systems. And that, it turns out, is actually a pretty complicated thing to do. The uh, monitoring verification of those emissions reductions is not at all easy. And so this is something which was committed to in principle uh, in Paris in 2015. 
um, has still not been finalized and confirmed. The rule book for that has not been agreed. It's the last outstanding piece of the Paris Agreement for which the rule book has not been finalized. And if they can manage to do that, it's potentially very significant because it opens up lots of new routes for financing emissions reductions, for identifying where uh, the most cost-effective reductions in emissions can come from, looking around the whole world and saying, there are some quick wins here, there are some low-hanging fruit in terms of things we can do that would make a significant difference to global greenhouse gas emissions at a relatively low cost. And we can work out ways to make that happen, to make sure these are real reductions in emissions and to get them financed. So if that can happen, that's going to be a very, very significant step forward. I've seen it described as adding rocket fuel to the Paris process it's, uh, or supercharging it, uh, all of which I don't know if they're quite uh, the appropriate metaphor to be using, but doing something, uh, maybe uh, amping it up. This is something which is very important for making real global progress on emissions. And if that does manage to get finalized at Glasgow, that's going to be a real step forward. And it's a very important thing to watch for. Yeah, and that is something the business community really cares about. Um, I spoke with Lisa Jacobson, who is with the Business Council for Sustainable Energy, and she's been taking delegations for years. She's been going since Kyoto. Um, and the only years she said she's missed were the ones that her children were born in. <laughs> so it says something right there about her dedication. She's been to the the one the mid ones in Bonn as well. But I was in one of her delegations, and she takes delegates um, from businesses uh, all over the United States. And when I was running Gridwise Alliance, I was part of her delegation. And just remember, this isn't just governments that are at the COP. Um, in the twenty five thousand people that show up, for unfortunately, Glasgow only has like eleven thousand hotel beds whereas Paris had 156,000. So yeah, it's a little tight over there right now. But out of these 25,000 people, a lot of them are civil society, so nonprofits, um, and also businesses. And really, it's the businesses, right, that are going to be investing in climate solutions. And so in some ways, she says, you know, the public sector, all the, the government governments are really needing to provide, you know, financing um, opportunities, needing to provide policies that then business can step in and execute on. And so she said the, the business community is extremely important um, and that this public-private partnership certainly that's also the model of the World Economic Forum, is crucial to getting all of this done. Because it's not just the governments that get to decide what happens with climate. It's everybody who participates um, in our society and everybody who participates in our economy that has to step in. And, you know, as Ed said, certainly Article 6, a lot of those folks care about. But a lot of those folks care about, you know, what are, what are the countries going to put into place that we're going to really be able to enact? And in some ways, the businesses can help make those happen. Well, I know that you're going to be covering this more in upcoming episodes, so we'll all be paying attention closely to what happens over the next couple of weeks. Let's just go to our free electrons. Catherine, what is your final free electron? <laughs> yeah, so one thing I wanted to po point everybody to, which I have, I think, talked about in the past because I was an ambassador now and I'm a I'm Ambassador Emeritus 
of the C3E, which is the Clean Energy Education and Empowerment Initiative through Depart- that the Department of Energy started. It's in its 10th year, and every year they celebrate women who are across industry in clean energy. So they have somebody who won for 2021 for business. That's Megan Nutting. She's with Sonova. She's amazing. Education and advocacy is Marina Baduan Criticos, whom I'm sure I mispronounced. Um, she's at the Houston Advanced Research Center. Um, and there's someone who won for entrepreneurship, Steph Spears, who is the CEO of Solstice. I think a lot of us know about her. In government, Faith Cornet, who is with um, the Bureau of Energy Resources at Department of State. Um, I worked with her years ago. She is great. She's a big winner. International is Rhonda Jordan Antoine. She's an energy specialist at the World Bank. Law and finance, Johanna Offenjar is an engineer and project finance uh, professional who's done a lot with Clearway Energy Group. Social, economic, and policy innovation is Kate Anderson, who's the chief of staff for energy systems at NREL. So I'm an alum of NREL, so I always love it when someone from NREL wins. Technology, research, and innovation is Miriam Sedefard. Again, apologies for all my mispronunciations. Uh, She's with Georgia Institute of Technology. And then the Lifetime Achievement Award goes to Cheryl LaFleur, who is one of the longest serving commissioners at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And she was the chair and then not the chair and then the chair and not the chair. She went back and forth. She was basically a utility player the entire time and did a great job. And this just leads me to summarize by saying, I, I want to thank certainly my husband and kids for being silent during all of my tapings because uh, during COVID that was really a challenge and I will I will always um, be very grateful for everything they did to support this. Um, also my family members who don't know anything about energy but who listened anyway. But I really want to thank all the women, all of you out there who have said um, that they have somehow heard their voice in mine. And that's meant more to me than anything else. And these are women all along the co- career spectrum, from students to corporate CEOs, um, and have said they really appreciated having a woman's voice to listen to on a show like this, where, you know, quite often I will be on calls almost every day with my clients, all of whom have are men, all of the leadership is men. And I think um, it's really important for us as women, and it's important for everybody because everybody benefits when more, more women are in the room, um, to support each other, to listen to each other, uh, to raise each other up. Um, I certainly plan on doing that going forward. I will not be a stranger to all of you, so you anybody is feel free to reach out. Um, but I just think uh, having all of our voices heard and a diverse uh, backgrounds, cultures, ethnicities is just critical to making sure that we really move forward uh, with a better world. And I'm grateful to each and every one of you, so thank you. What a truly wonderful sentiment to end on. Uh, just thank you for... For all your contributions, your hard work going into the show, and for being a voice for so many. And it's been wonderful also to see how many more uh, women are getting elevated, and you truly have been a role model for so many. So thanks for everything you've done. Uh, 100% agree. That's a fantastic point. That's a really um, profound statement I think you've made, and and great to hear it, and something I I absolutely agree with. uh, So my... Free Electron is much less serious, but I just want to talk about um, the movie Dune, which is, um, uh, I haven't even seen yet, but I'm planning to go and see it next weekend, but I'm very excited about that. It's, um, so I read it probably at the right age, an impressionable age of maybe 12 or 13, and it absolutely blew me away. It's a not very 
subtle but very powerful allegory about the importance of oil in the world economy. And it's also a great book about ecology. And um, I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but it emerges essentially that um, the ecology of a planet is absolutely vital for um, all the economic activity in the universe and everything that goes on and the uh, the entirety of this uh interstellar civilization is founded on the ecology of one planet it's a really uh interesting thought-provoking idea very much ahead of its time very prescient it was written in kind of 1962 63 um very much anticipating the interest in these themes about energy and environment around the world i read it when i was 12 years old I'm not certain that it still holds up, but it's very powerful in my memory. And I would definitely uh, urge people to go and see the movie or even better read the book, because I do think it's got some messages which are really interesting and relevant today. So I had a story about the plastics industry and how emissions from that industry could surpass the global coal industry. Uh, but I'm not really going to talk about that because I, I want to riff on what Catherine said, which is just some final sentiment before we we head off and, and pass the torch over to Ed. I just want to thank everybody for taking the time to, to listen to the show, to these conversations. You know, we've been trying to figure this out. We all bring our different areas of expertise, but I think what makes this show special is that we are talking through things, trying to figure it out together and lean on each other and the, our different areas of expertise to try to make these conversations accessible for people who are in the business, running companies, but also looking for careers in the industry and trying to advance the energy transition in their communities. So thanks. Thanks for giving us your time. Uh, I look forward to hearing your conversations, Ed, and the folks that you bring on this show and um, you know, keep keep the spirit alive of trying to figure this out because it's going to be messy. There's going to be a lot of ups and downs, but we can see where things are headed. So thank you, and thanks to, to everyone else. Yeah, thanks, Ed. I don't think you're going to run out of things to talk about. It's been a pleasure and a privilege to be a part of this and a great responsibility to take it forward. And I'm very excited about the future and what we're going to be able to do with the Energy Gang from now on. Catherine, um, any any parting words or sentiment? Mm, I'll miss doing this, Stephen. This has been really fun. Truly a, a delight every week. Um, well, you can follow Catherine on Twitter, as always. You can follow me on Twitter to see what we're up to. Uh, you can, of course, follow Ed and the Energy Gang to see what they're doing with the show. And uh, thanks to everyone involved. This is the Energy Gang, weekly conversations on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Thanks for being here. <laughs>